we have uh, assignment due this week, homework number three, which I gave out last week. I'll give you full homework four probably on Friday. So that's due on Friday. Um, I do have the quiz and exam left as scheduled. I'll see how far we get through things by Friday and decide if I have to push either of those off a day or a couple days to the next set. I want to make sure we get through all of chapter nine. So depending on how far we get through Friday, I'll be able to let you know whether the exam will be on the second or the seventh. Because I won't put you, I won't put the exam till Friday. If we don't do the exam on the Wednesday, it'll go to the next Monday. Because I don't want you to take an exam and then come back for lab. It just it, logistically, it's a lot harder to do because some people are taking longer on the exam and then some. It just makes a mess. So it'll either be the second or it'll get pushed off till the following Monday, which is the seventh. Uh, the iTunes quiz that'll go as scheduled, starting on the seventh. That'll be fine. And then homework four, I'll hand out next. I'll hand out next time for you, and that will be due on the 11th. So, and I'll let you know for sure on those on, fri on Friday as to whether I'll extend. What I'll probably do is make the quiz will be available Friday regardless if you want to take it, but I might give you a couple extra days if I haven't gotten through enough of that chapter yet. Questions? Okay, picture of the day for today is M81 versus M82. Uh, these are two galaxies here. Let's grab my. So M81 and M82 are both galaxies. Uh, M, the M designation is for Charles Messier's catalog of about 100, a little over 100 fuzzy objects through a small telescope that he made back in the uh, late 1600s. So he was scanning the sky looking for comets. And he'd find little fuzzy objects. Didn't look anything like this to him through the small telescopes of the time, but would look like a little fuzzy patch in the sky. So it would get confused with the comet. People would be watching it. Is it a comet? Is it coming closer to the Earth or not? And would be watching that. And that would give a catalog of about 100 of the brightest fuzzy objects that were uh, not actually comets. Uh, why it's M81 versus M82 is that these two galaxies are in the process of colliding. They've probably passed close to each other several times. And they have, that has sort of enhanced the brightness of the spiral arms over here in M81. A lot bluer and a lot, um, lot more uh, prominent spiral arms than we see in a lot of galaxies. And that often gets enhanced by the interaction between a couple, between that pair of galaxies. In this one, we also see a lot of extra star formation. So a lot of stars forming as the galaxies are colliding. The gas clouds will collide together, and it'll enhance some star formation. That will continue. Supernovae explosions from some of the first stars to form will continue that process. And so when the galaxies are colliding, it actually enhances the number of stars that are forming. Eventually, billion of years from now, hundreds of millions of years from now, the two will probably coalesce and form a single galaxy. Similar to what might happen with us in the Andromeda galaxy. Again, billions of years from now as they collide together and form larger and larger galaxies. And that's probably actually how we believe galaxies grow. We think that the first galaxies to form 13 billion years ago were very small, tiny, irregular galaxies. And that over time, over those billions of years, they've coalesced together. They've grown, to get, they've grown together. And combined them, they've eaten each other, you know, cannibalized each other, and become larger and larger galaxies over time to the galaxies that we see today. Question, sir? Since we believe in expanding 
mentioned that everything came from a single point mm -hmm. exploded outwards, okay? How is it that if everything is exploding outwards that things are colliding? Wouldn't they just all be going away from one another? Overall, in the grand scheme of the universe, yes, everything is moving away from each other. But, but on smaller scales, the solar system, gravity overwhelms that. Gravity is stronger than the expansion. So when things are close together, like these two galaxies, they're gravitationally bound together. They're not expanding apart. The space between galaxies on a big scale, us and a galaxy billions of light years away, that's what's expanding. No, but like we're running into Andromeda mm -hmm. in the future. How is it right. possible? Is it the gravity it's of the, gravity. the galaxies Yeah, together? the gravity of the two galaxies. It's, it's gravity overwhelms the expansion on small scales. On big scales, it's the other way around. The expansion overwhelms. They're essentially orbiting each other as like a pair of binary stars would be. They're orbiting, but they're, they're colliding in that they'll pass by each other and they'll pass by each other again and they'll slowly get closer and closer until they coalesce. So you can think of them as, yes, as being in orbit. Not one isn't just passing by. Sometimes you see a collision where one just passes, just passing by and they'll, you know, leave and never come back. In this case, you don't, you're not seeing that they're eventually, from what the studies say, they're going to be able to coalesce together. Yeah, you can think of it as like that. Yeah. Well, what causes galaxies to have spiral arms? Like, well, some galaxies. Like well, what causes some is a very good question. One thing we don't understand we have a we think we have a pretty good idea of how the spiral arms remain once they form. Mm -hmm. We don't have a real good idea of what causes them to form in the first place. One thing that we think is possibilities is collisions. That if when, when galaxies collide, computer simulations have been done that if you smash galaxies together with the right orientation, you can actually create spiral arms. But really good understanding of what creates the spiral arms in the first place is not, not well understood. Once they form, we can get, a, and I'll talk about that later when we get to galaxies, we have a pretty good idea of why they seem to stay once they form. But forming them in the first place is not something we really have a good handle on yet. Milky Way does have spiral arms, yes. And we've probably collided with other, many other galaxies in the past to have gotten as large as we are today. Yes, sir? All right, this might be a stupid question. You no. galaxies for the most part. There's only a disk in one certain direction. There isn't really any height to them. Why is that? Um, the, way, the, the way the galaxies have collapsed when the galaxies formed here, that's the spiral galaxies. There are other galaxies that are, three, that are really, they're all three-dimensional, but they're really like a big sphere. There are d different type of galaxies called an elliptical galaxy, and they're like a big ball of stars, essentially. Or a slightly flattened ball of stars. You can think of them ranging from about a basketball to a football shape. So they're a lot bigger. Spiral galaxies, when they collapse, so something about the collisions that form them, cause them to collapse and flatten down. Yeah? In terms of the spiral arms? Yeah. Yeah, the spiral arms, it's thought of as like a traffic jam, often, that the material gets bunched together and that's where the stars form, so it, illumin it illuminates that section is kind of how they, how they try to think about it. Sort of as a, as a cosmic traffic jam where the stars are all bunched together.
together. They don't stay there. The stars don't stay within a spiral arm. They move, the Milky Way will move through a spiral arm, and then you know, millions of years later, it'll be outside the spiral, and then it'll pass through another one. So it actually moves through them over time. They don't stay there. Just as you move through, you got a real slow spot of traffic. You know, you move through it, that slow spot may stay there, but people are moving through it, and the cars that are in it now, and if you take a picture 15 minutes later, are not the same. Okay, unless it's completely stopped. But you know what I mean. If, unless it's completely stopped, you know, 15 minutes later, it's a different set of cars there, but the jam is still, may still be there. That's what we think of as terms of the spiral arms. Did I get what you're? Okay. Good questions, good questions. They, they probably do have black holes at the center. Uh, most likely when they collide, the black holes will coalesce and become one even larger black hole. So you're saying it's all galaxies should have a central black hole? Every, any large galaxy, yes. There are smaller, tiny galaxies that may not. But pretty much any galaxy will have a black hole at the center. How big it is, is depends on the other conditions. But yes, every galaxy should have some, a large black hole at the center. The one at the center of our galaxy is relatively small galaxy-wise speaking. It's about, about 3, 4 million solar times the mass of the sun. That's relatively small compared to some of the ones you see in other galaxies. Anything else? Already? Well, let's get back a little closer to home then, get back to Jupiter, which is what we were looking at. Maybe. There it goes. So I sort of went through a quick summary of the Jovian planets. I'm going to go through a little bit more here and uh, talk about some of these. This is Jupiter, Jupiter's atmosphere. Let me shut this now. Jupiter's atmosphere has light and dark bands that alternate. And one of the things I want to emphasize with the pictures here is that when you look at the surface of Jupiter, you're not seeing a surface, you're looking at the top of the atmosphere. The atmosphere edge is not really something that's well defined. There isn't a smooth edge where you can say, you know, like the surface of the Earth, we know where the surface of the Earth is, we can you know, go down there and tap it. But when you talk about where the edge of the atmosphere, whether on the Earth or on Jupiter, there isn't really a specific spot. It just gets thinner and thinner as you go further out into space. And that's kind of what's shown here, is when you see some of these belts, the darker areas, the zones, the lighter areas, when you look at Jupiter, you're not looking at one flat surface. You're looking at higher areas, higher elevations in the zones that are much higher up above the rest of the clouds. So these are up here, whereas the darker areas, the belts, are actually much lower down. So you think of looking at Jupiter as that nice, beautiful image of the planet, but it really is very rough. You're looking at higher and lower levels that you really can't see. And what it is, is sort of a convection type zone. You have warmer material rising, comes up here, that gives you the higher zones, the lighter zones. The material cools off, so it's hotter material, brighter. The material cools off, and the cooler material sinks, so it's cooler. It's not going to be as bright, and it tends to sink back down to heat up. So it's sort of like a little convection pattern where the warm material rises, cools off, and then sinks back down to be heated again and come back up. We'll see this again when we talk about the sun uh, in a couple of days. The sun has a similar type of pattern. Doesn't show these long streams on it, but one of the differences is that Jupiter rotates so fast. Jupiter just whips around in a little under 10 hours. I mean, that's, that's moving. We take 24 hours. Jupiter is many times the size of the Earth. It rotates in less than 10. So it zips around. 
and perhaps all these zones are getting stretched out. We see some similar type, but we do see similar type of structures on the on the sun. Yes. There could be something that, that accounts for the belts and something in there, perhaps at one of these boundaries, there might be some way that if certain conditions happen that the storms could start to form. That would actually start to form things like the Great Red Spot. And something like the Great Red Spot, which I'll show you again in a minute here. Is it the next slide? Yeah, it is. Something like the Great Red Spot, you know, sort of at the border between some, you know, a little bit lighter area, a little bit darker area up here. There's a real light area. Something may cause that to storm, and it might be one of those things that's almost self-perpetuating. Once it gets there, then you know, it's stable. It becomes stable and it actually starts to form. So whereas some of the smaller things may come and go, this actual larger area remains at least for hundreds of years. We know that it's lasted for hundreds of years. Come back in 500 years, will it still be there? No. Come back and find out. You know, but we don't. We don't know exactly how long it has existed. All right, so great red spot is the major feature on the surface of Jupiter. And again, that's been there. It's been observed since the late, I believe the late 1600s was the first time it was observed. And it's been observed continuously pretty much for the last couple hundred years. So not necessarily since that time, but since the 1800s or so, last 200 years, it's been observed pretty much consistently. And it's been there. So we know that it has existed for at least that long. We don't know how long it was there. If it was there 5,000, 10,000 years ago, maybe, maybe not. We didn't have the technology to be able to see it. Will it be there 5,000 or 10,000 years from now? Well, we just got to wait and see. There's nothing we can do to, to tell about that. We do know that some of the storms, some of the smaller ones, do come and go. And there's also a large one on Neptune that I'll show you in a minute that has also disappeared, that we detected earlier and actually disappeared. But we haven't had the amount of time to study these planets yet. Things are too long for the scales that you know, to happen astronomically. Here on Earth, storms come and go in you know, a month for a good hurricane, right? From the time it forms till the time it, it dissipates, maybe about a month or so. Um, these storms, if these last that much longer, we just don't have the time to be able to actually have seen them come and go. It might take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of years to be able to watch these storms come and go. Yeah. Storms that did this, maybe like the one in Neptune, how, mm -hmm. how, long, how long do you think they lasted for? That's the thing. We don't know. We, we know that the storm on, on Neptune was there when Voyager went by in 1989. We know that more recent pictures from Hubble, it's not there. But we don't know how long it had existed before 1989. That's the first time we ever had the technology to be able to see it. Now that we still have it, we're not seeing it anymore. So we don't know if it lasted for a couple of years and we just happened to catch it when Voyager went by? Or if it had been there for 300 years before and then that was the very end. It was in the process of dissipating. Until we can actually see one from the whole st structure from beginning to end, it's really hard to, hard to tell. You haven't seen any small storms that happen like that. Not, not the big ones. Small storms they've seen, the little ones on Jupiter you see come and go. I would say months to years, yeah, depending on the size of them. The bigger ones seem to last a little longer, little ones seem to dissipate a little quicker. But to give you an idea of the size of that storm, we've got the little earth down there. That's to scale. So you can fit about two earths in the great red spot. To give you an idea of how big that, that storm is. So that's not just a little, you know, 
It's not just like a big hurricane here on Earth, which you know takes up a chunk of the chunk of the surface. That's actually something that's twice the size of our entire planet. So just to give you an idea of the scale of that as well. So great red spot and the cloud banding, the detailed cloud banding, are primarily what we see on Jupiter. For Saturn, as I said, we're just going to jump through these pretty quickly. Uh, atmosphere of Saturn is very similar to that of Jupiter, composition-wise. The big difference is the temperature. Saturn is twice as far away from the sun. So, get further away from the sun, you get colder. Right? So it gets a lot colder, and that means there's, in order to form all those belts and zones that we saw on Jupiter, they're forming on Saturn, they're there, but they're much, down, much deeper down below what we see as the surface of the planet, what we see as the top of the atmosphere. If they're further down, where it's warmer, so they can actually occur, then we've got all this other material on top of it that we're looking through, and it sort of washes out the features that we see. So we don't see as much on Jupiter, on Saturn, as we do on Jupiter. The same types of features, same types of clouds are there, but because of the temperature, and therefore the thicker atmosphere, everything is much further, further down below further down below the surface of those clouds. You do see some of the moons here. I'll come back in chapter 8 later today and we'll start talking about looking at some of the moons in a little bit more detail, but you can actually see a few of those in the images taken here. Uh, The first moons of Saturn were actually discovered in, not discovered by Galileo, but the later 1600s. We actually discovered the first of the moons of Saturn as well as the moons of Mars and some of the more of Jupiter that were discovered. So it didn't take too long after we discovered the after we discovered the planets, after we found the planets, found the telescope, that we're able to start finding these moons. As I said, now we've got hundreds, over a hundred, hundred moons. No, it'll reflect off there, so you can't get deep down with you can't get deep down with deep down with radar. Um, you can study it with Jupiter. We've actually sent a probe in there. Probe was dropped into the atmosphere to give us a study uh, till it just crushed. Part of the problem is that atmosphere. You know, it looks like a nice atmosphere. We think of an atmosphere like this, right? We're used to what we're used to. The atmosphere on these planets starts out less dense than that, gets this dense, and then gets many times denser. So eventually you would get to the point where gases are compressed, you know, to a very um, almost liquid, very dense state. So denser than anything we have. So any radar waves would reflect right off that, and you can't get down any deeper below. Um, In terms of determining rotations, how do we figure out how these planets rotate? It's a little different than when we look at the the terrestrial planets. Terrestrial planets, we can watch, we can look at Mars, we can pick out a feature on it, and we could watch it go around and find out that it takes it about a day. In fact, about 24 and a half hours, about a half hour longer day on Mars than it is here on Earth. We could uh, use radar to watch features on Venus, we could use radar to watch our Mercury, we could look at features and study that. When we look at the Jovian planets, we really can't do that. We, don't, we never see a surface. There is no surface to see. So what we're measuring the rotation of is the rotation of the different storms. So you could watch something like the great red spot on Jupiter. Put your telescope there, watch it. Come back an hour later, it disappeared. How long does it take to come back to where it started again? And measuring that, you can measure that it's about 10 hours. We can see the same kind of thing here. This is looking at Uranus. Uh, very sm- few features, but if you see a couple of them pointed out here, and then as they move around, 
and there's one there as it's heading off. You can use those features to measure and you find that Uranus and Neptune are a little over half a day to rotate around, a little half of one of our days to rotate around once. But we can use that kind of thing for any of the planets, any of the Jovian planets, but what we're really measuring is the rotation of the atmosphere. How fast is the atmosphere rotating? It sometimes is slightly different than the actual planet. You know, whatever the more solid part is down below, that might rotate at a slightly different rate. Not wildly different, but slightly different. And we can sometimes measure that by looking at studies of the magnetic field of the planet. If we study the magnetic field of the planet and how that changes, how that rotates, that magnetic field is not really generated out in the atmosphere, it's generated deeper down in the core. And that's one way to get a measurement of how fast the planet is really rotating. Now here's the one I said on Neptune. Neptune has the great dark spot. This was seen by Voyager in 1989. That's what these images are here. There's a wider image of it. And then zooming in, there's the great dark spot. And that was there at the time, but then disappeared in more recent years. It has not been seen by Hubble Space Telescope. Can't get us quite this kind of quality images, but is definitely powerful enough to be able to detect that storm where it's, where it's still there. So we know that it has disappeared. But again, the question is, it was there in 1989. Did it form in 1988? Did it form in 1888? Did it form in 1488? You know, when did it form? There's no way to tell because before Voyager we had no way to be able to see that much detail on the planet to be able to learn that. So we still really do not have a good handle on how long these storms last, especially these big storms. They might last for hundreds of years. We know that the Great Red Spot has been around for hundreds of years. They might last longer than that or that might be, you know, getting towards the edge of there their life. We don't know for sure on any of them, but we do know that they've disappeared. But again, we don't know if this storm had, fo had formed 15 years before Voyager saw it, 150 years before it, 1,050, 15th, it could have been there for thousands of years, could have been there for hundreds of years, could have been there for tens of years, could have been there just for a year. It's something we can't know without having observations, without having sent a spacecraft out there earlier to have observed it. So keep watching it and looking for more storms is the way to really learn about them. Yeah. I do not know off the top of my head. I do not know. Um, Hubble went up in 19, what, 1990, and that was right after Voyager was there. So by the time they look, it might have been in the last. It might have been in the last decade or so. I don't know. I, don't quote me on that for sure. But it's. But it has, it, has, it has not been seen for, for a while now. Will a new one form? Probably will. I mean, the storms seem to be quite common on these planets. All right. On to chapter 8. Then we get back to the, then we get back to the slower chapters. Oops. Sorry, let me get you the, if you want to get that. Moons, rings, and plutoids. We zipped through all the planets, but we really didn't talk about any of the moons. And I sort of vaguely mentioned the rings, but I want to spend a little bit more time on that in this chapter. And then Plutoids. So one object we did not discuss yet was Pluto. Pluto being a, one of the dwarf planets now. So we're going to spend a little bit of time towards the end of this chapter and talk about Pluto and the other similar objects that we have. So skimming through the different satellites that we see, we're going to start out, very, start out with the closer ones. And we're looking at, we've already talked about our moon. Moons of Mars really aren't anything much to talk about. Two little tiny rocks that are orbiting the planet, essentially. 
what we want to look at is the moons of the uh, Jovian planets. And we're going to look at primarily the large ones. I'm not going to go into detail on all of them, as again, there were 100 and some, 160 or so. We're not going to talk about each of them. In fact, some of those are not much more than rocks themselves, you know, things that are a kilometer in size, half a kilometer in size. So they're not all that big. We want to look at the bigger ones, the more interesting ones. And the first one is Io. Io, very, very near Jupiter. And it is the most volcanically active object in the solar system. There's a volcanic eruption seen right here. It's got thousands, hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of active volcanoes. And there's actually one erupting with the material spreading out. We know it's very young by the fact that it has no known impact craters. If you recall, we talked about impact craters. They are one way to be able to determine the age of a planet. How old is that surface? How long has it been since that surface been, has been reworked? Well, in the case of Io, we know this surface is very young because we don't see any impact craters. We see lots of volcanoes. We see lots of other odd features on it. But we do not see any sign of impact, impact craters at all. Why does it have so much volcanic activity? Well, that's because it's so close to Jupiter. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about tides when we talked about the Earth here other than it's something that you hear about if you're going towards the beach, high tide, low tide. Sort of interesting to know what's going on there. But tide, tidal forces are the same thing going on here. Io is about the same distance from Jupiter as our moon is from us. Okay, So the distance is the same. Jupiter is a little tiny bit more massive than the Earth. Just a little, you know. Okay, a lot more massive. So Remember how it stretches on the Earth. It doesn't really stretch the Earth. The moon doesn't have that much gravity, but it stretches, it pulls the water. Well, guess what? Jupiter is so much stronger gravitationally that it can actually deform Io a little bit. So instead of being a perfect sphere, it gets bent a tiny bit. As it moves around Jupiter, where that bulges changes, a little changes. So Io ends up getting sort of squished this way and then pulled again and then pulled back, and it gets Essentially, like taking a ball of clay and kneading it, it heats up. Well, when you do, you're doing the same thing. Jupiter is doing the same thing to Io. Between Jupiter's gravity and the gravity of some of the other moons, Europa, Ganymede, a little bit further out, the strong tidal forces just heated up, just melted inside. So it is the hottest, hotter interior of a planet, even though it's so small. It's only the size of our moon. So where we put this right where our moon is and got rid of Jupiter there, it would be as cold and dead as our moon. Same size. It's only because Jupiter is constantly kneading it, twisting it, pulling it, pulling, stretching, stretching, and letting go of it, that it is getting so much heat inside that it can stay volcanically active even after every other object in the solar system, except for the Earth, pretty much has very little to any volcanic activity. So. Very strong, and that's where the energy is coming from for the volcanoes of Io. Venus, I don't, have not been active that I have ever heard. That there are volcanoes there and there are remnants of volcanoes, but nothing more like Mars, that nothing is still active on it. Part of that might be because it doesn't have a moon. Our moon might be doing something to keep our, you know, tidal forces may be keeping our crust a little more fluid and keeping it a little, leaving a little more room for volcanoes to still form on the Earth that cannot form on Venus anymore. Europa, yeah, not quite no craters. It actually does have a couple of craters, 
but it is also one of the younger surface one of the younger surfaces in the solar system. Io and Europa are two of the youngest. There are a couple of craters on its surface, but not much. It's actually interesting in that it is its surface is completely made of water ice. So it's completely you know, big big ice skating rink there, right? Get it nice and smooth. You got a big ice skating rink. The whole planet is actually covered in water ice. And it's also thought that there is liquid water below that surface. So you have a big thick crust, hundreds of kilometers thick of, of ice, you know, regular ice. Um, and then below that you have an ocean of liquid water. Downward it's a little bit warmer. That ice sort of shields it from space and have, keeps some heat in. There's probably an ocean of water down below that, completely down below that surface. Good point. There could be Europa is actually one of the places that is considered, you know, likely to have most likely to have uh, life offside of the Earth. Europa is a good one. Mars probably at some point. Perhaps Titan. We'll get to the moon of Saturn in a little bit. But those are some of the ones that are most likely to have had some kind of life, either now or in the past. It also has more water than the Earth does. Slightly smaller than our moon, but it's got more water than we have on the entire Earth. Again, remember, the water on the Earth is only that very thin layer. Those, you know, those outer few miles have lots of water and we're covered in it. But if you dig down deep, there's nothing there. Whereas if you keep drilling down into Io, there's water for kilometers and kilometers and hundreds of kilometers down below that. So even though it's a lot smaller, it actually has a lot of water. And what you're seeing in the images here are just kind of zooming in and looking at some of the structures, interesting structures that you see on the surface, uh, almost little crystalline patterns as what happens when there is an impact. You cr if you crack the surface a little bit, weak spots in it would allow water to flow. And that water reaching the vacuum of space is going to immediately, reaching the cold temperature is going to immediately freeze and crystallize. And you're going to get these very interesting patterns on the surface as water has flowed, flowed through. So the surface stays relatively smooth, relatively clear of impact craters, only a few of the more recent ones still remaining. But the tidal forces, like we had on Io, also apply to Europa, but to a lesser extent. No volcanic activity, uh, intense volcanic activity as we had on Io, it's a little further away from Jupiter and the, volcanic, uh, the tidal forces are not near as strong. As we run out, I said just do each of these briefly, Ganymede, this is the largest moon in the solar system. Uh, so much larger than Pluto. Pluto's smaller than our own moon. Actually larger than the planet Mercury. It looks a lot like our own moon in many ways. If you take a look at it here, you've got darker areas, you've got lighter areas, you've got lots of impact craters scattered around. Here's a zooming in at one little section here, looking at some of those. You also see flows, again signs of flowing water. Not currently. But where, when there was some impact, something to generate some heat for a short time, where you actually would have had water flow out and crystallize very quickly. So it actually is very similar to what we see on our own moon, except instead of using rock, molten rock and lava to flow and fill things, it was, you know, water. So molten, molten ice, you know, slushy ice that would flow, that would flow out from the interior to cover the surface. So very similar to what we see on our own moon, actually significantly larger planet uh, object than our own moon, but similar features, similar structure overall in the gross detail to what we see on our own on our own moon. Does 
I would say right now, I would say that our moon probably has more craters. This has a little bit more uh, ability to flow with the water. Water flows would be a little bit more and would probably be able to wipe out more craters. We'll see even more craters when we get out to the last moon. We actually see even more. The further you get away from Jupiter, the less active you get and the more craters you start to see. So no craters on Io and hardly any on Europa. More on Ganymede and even more on Callisto coming up here. So here's Callisto and you see now we're getting closer to what we look think about at our moon. There's some very large impacts here, the Valhalla impact. You can almost see how it's shattered. Look at the rings where it would shatter the ice where it crashed. Most of these moons, you know, we think of our moon as being the typical, right? Our moon is rock on the surface. Most of these moons, ignore, ignore Io, Io's had most anything ice melted off of it because of the volcanic activity, but most of these are actually a combination of rock and ice, so they're icier surfaces. So you can imagine when you smash something into ice, you get this kind of fracturing pattern and this ring pattern around it as well. When you look closer in, you actually see the impact craters on a much smaller scale when you're talking about things that are tens of kilometers across. They look a lot like the impact craters on our own moon. So here we're getting to the point where you're seeing a comparable number of craters to what we see on our moon. Typically the number of craters that formed on any object is about the same. As many impacts have hit Io, as have hit our moon, as have hit the Earth, as have hit Mercury, it's all about the same. The number of craters that we see today just tell us how old the surface is. If the craters are still there from three billion years ago, that's an old surface. It's still the same surface that it was three billion years ago. If there's far fewer craters like there are on the Earth, the surface is constantly being reworked and weathered. It's changing. It's not the same surface. You go back a billion years, the Earth's surface didn't look the same as it does today. So timing-wise, that has changed. That, change, that changes the, what, how many craters we actually see. All right, moving out to the next one, moving out towards Saturn. Uh, Saturn has one large moon. Jupiter has four. Saturn has one of them called Titan, uh, the only moon with an atmosphere. It actually has an atmosphere. The atmosphere's composition is almost the same as the Earth's with one exception. It's got lots of nitrogen. In fact, it's almost all nitrogen. It's got a good percentage of argon, which is the third most abundant element in our atmosphere. It's only missing oxygen. so. Can't go there and breathe, but other than that, it's the comp composition of its atmosphere is almost exactly the same as the Earth's. Lots of nitrogen and lots of argon, primarily what we have as well. It's actually a thicker atmosphere than the Earth, so if you were to go down there, it would feel, if you could go stand on the surface, at least have something on your head to breathe, it would feel about 50% heavier, denser than that. So the, the weight you feel pushing on you now that you're used to, it would be like being you know, below water pushing on you a little bit more. You'd have, feel a little more pressure on you. It's about 50%, not quite twice as much as the Earth. So not near as bad as Venus where it's 100 times and you're going to get crushed, but still a little bit higher than what we have on the Earth. Now, temperature-wise, it's colder. So it's got the atmosphere like the Earth, but it's a lot colder. So there's no liquid water or anything on the surface, even though it has an atmosphere. It does have liquid methane, so the temperatures are cold enough that methane is actually a liquid. And we've landed on the surface of Titan. It's the only other moon other than our own that we've actually landed on now. 
And when the Cassini spacecraft, with, well, which is still orbiting Saturn, was sent out, it sent a probe to actually go through the atmosphere and send us back a couple of pictures, our first few pictures, of what the surface of Titan really looks like. Because we don't know. It's got this atmosphere, and kind of like Venus, it's a real thick, hazy atmosphere. We can't see through it. So no telescopes, no spacecraft out there is going to help you see through that. Radar, yeah, you can send radar images through it and get, get a map of the surface. But to really see it, to really get a visual of it, you actually have to send something down below the clouds. And we did do that um, with the Cassini spacecraft. So just a, oh, what is it now, about five, five, ten years ago, when the spacecraft first got there, it actually launched the lander there to land on uh, Titan and send us back a few images of that. But even here, even when you're only 4,000 kilometers away from it, so what, about 2,500 miles, you can't see anything from its surface. Again, this is one of the other places that is considered likely to have life, not because it has liquid water, but because it does have a flowing liquid on its surface, liquid methane. Problem with Titan is that it's much colder, and chemical reactions that, will, that would hopefully cause life to form in the first place depend on the temperature. The hotter it is, the faster a chemical reaction goes. The colder it is, the slower a chemical reaction goes. Well, this is a lot colder than anything we have on Earth. So it sort of minimizes the possibility from our current understanding. You know, we're biased by we only know of life having formed in one place. We don't know of any others, so there might be other methods that we don't even know about. But as of right now, we only have the one place. But the idea is there that you do have methane. You have methane raining out of the atmosphere, so you have a rain. You have methane rivers lakes on it. So it has a liquid and a, and a cycle, a liquid cycle on its surface, just not water. It's a different, different uh, compound. So like a xenophobe, I'm sorry, could? Probably some of them could, probably some of them could survive if they got, if they got there. It's whether they'd form, how they'd form in the first place. And that's again, that's something we don't know is how long it takes life to form on a planet. We only know on Earth. It took us, you know, very short time after the Earth formed to actually form little tiny creatures. But we don't know. Is that right? Is that easy? Is that slow? Or is that fast? Mm. You've only got one. You can't tell whether it's slow or fast, right? It's the only thing you got. These are some of the images that were taken by the Huygens lander. So these are a few of them. Again, that might not look all that different than the picture we looked at of Venus before. But that's actually the surface of Titan. You can again see the haziness. And it looks again like a desert area. Here you're seeing some kinds of flows going down. You can see some of these little darker areas, almost like little river riverbeds, river forking, forking of the river there. And you do see some of that. So we do see that there is a liquid flowing on the surface of Titan. The first one was taken as the lander was coming down. So as it was coming in below the surface, this one was taken actually after it had landed. And it was on the surface for about, it was actually active for about an hour, hour or two, a couple hours. Not for a very long time uh, because it didn't have a transmitter strong enough to transmit back to Earth. It had to transmit to the Cassini spacecraft, which then transmitted back. So it didn't actually stay there for very long and was only, only there for a little bit of time just to get us those first few images of the surface. Now the last moon I'm going to mention is, not to be confused with Titan, is Triton. Uh, Triton is actually the orbit around Neptune. It's the large, other large moon. Uranus has about five middle-sized moons. It doesn't have any that are really large. 
Neptune does have the one large moon. It is it has a very active surface, so it does have some, you know, there's a great impact basin now frozen over with a liquid. So it does have a relatively active surface as well. So it has some source of heating perhaps below. It also has uh, geysers like we have here on Earth, right? You know, water steam unreleased because it gets released. Well, guess what? You're way too cold out there to get water heating up, but you can heat up solid nitrogen into a gaseous into a gaseous nitrogen and get a nitrogen geyser. So if you're talking about you know nitrogen being frozen, you're under pretty cold temperatures out there. So that's probably something that has helped to wipe out a lot of the craters and to resurface it. These geysers throwing up material and spewing that out help to resurface the planet, give us some of those features, and wipe out any impact craters that form. Yes, there are some. You know, there's the frozen lake. There's an impact crater right in the middle of it. So something has hit that in the, since it actually formed. So there are a few impact craters there, but again, like Io and Europa, one of the younger surfaces in the solar system. All right. Oh, I'm sorry, did I skip that? I skipped that, didn't I? Retrograde orbit, it is the one object in the solar system, major object in the solar system between the planets and the large moons that orbits clockwise around its planet. Every single other, all the planets orbit counterclockwise around the sun. If you're looking down from the Earth's North Pole, every single planet orbits counterclockwise. Every single large moon of the planets orbits around counter, on their planet counterclockwise. Triton is the one that is an oddball. Triton is the one that does not. It orbits actually in a clockwise orbit. So possibly telling us something about its origin, that there was some large collision early on that put it into this very strange orbit. But it's the only one that actually orbits backwards. So that's what I mean. It's just a backwards orbit. Is the theory more of a collision that caused that orbit, or could it be possibly captured that orbit? Could have been, could have been captured, or could have been some sort of interaction between another object. Um, at one point, it was thought that it might have been Pluto, but that's been kind of ruled out that some other object came close and disturbed the orbits and changed them. So it could have been a capture. Um, because it is the one rare object that orbits backwards, it could be that as could be that as well. All right, let's look at rings real quick. Um, rings. Each of these Jovian planets have rings, and again, I'm not going into these de- these in great detail. But the ring system of Saturn is a very complex. It's not just looking at a nice band of rings or a nice smooth ring. When you look at it in detail here, there's actually the A ring, the B ring, the C ring. And it doesn't stop there. Those are the first three main ones, but there's D, E, F, and so on. There's a lot of rings there. And even those rings, you know, here's the bright, big bright B ring, is, are divided into brighter areas and darker areas. And there's all sorts of gaps between them. There's the Cassini division found very early that is actually a gap between the rings. So there's lots of ring particles here. Ring particles are just a little bits of ice dust particles that are maybe you know, so big, maybe up to human size, maybe even smaller. They're not gigantic particles. You can think of them all as little mini moons. You know, could be little tiny things. It could be centimeters in size, could be you know, a meter in size, but not, not a whole lot bigger than that. Tend to be very small particles. And they're grouped like this, but they have a very distinct structure to them. And that is caused by the other moons of Saturn further out there their gravity will tug on the different moons and on different ring particles and will clear certain areas. So the Cassini division 
is caused by one of the moons, its gravity being lined up exactly with those ring particles and kind of tugs them out of there. They're not, the orbits aren't stable in certain areas. So we see that in all this other fine structure is due to other smaller moons sort of interacting gravitationally with the rings. Now when we see the other rings, all of them have them. Here's Jupiter. Jupiter, not, not, no rings, nowhere near like what we see on Saturn, but a small thin ring around Jupiter. That was discovered. Uh, that was actually the third of the planets, third of the planets to be discovered, third of the Jovian planets to be discovered with a ring. Certainly Saturn was the first one. But Jupiter does have a small ring as well, but nowhere near as prominent as what we see on Saturn. Uranus has complex rings. Uh, you have one, two, three, four, five, the five brighter ones here. Ignore this little one in between and these couple here, those were discovered later. These first five were the ones that were discovered in the late 1970s. And they were discovered by watching a star pass by them. And watching the star was going to pass behind Uranus. Uranus was going to pass in front of the star. And before and after that we saw the light from the star dip and dim a couple times as it passed through these rings. So we actually discovered them quite by accident. It's a good thing because then as we were sending the Voyager spacecraft out there, we knew to look for these rings and could plan that into the mission to be able to study the rings closer. Whereas otherwise, we would have discovered them a few years later, 1985, 86, when Voyager got to Uranus, but we wouldn't have been ready for them. We would have been discovering them, Voyager zipping by there faster than we ever go, and by the time you found them, you had too late to be able to study them. So actually the fact that we studied them a few, found them a few years earlier was uh, very important. They're very narrow rings by comparison to what we saw on Saturn, very small thin rings. They also have uh, satellites kind of guarding them or shepherding on them. You'll see there's little tiny satellites on each edge and you know, like a shepherd keeps the sheep in one's place. Well these, these shepherding moons keep the ring particles confined very closely together. We see some of that in Saturn as well, sort of confining the edges of the rings. On Uranus, they actually keep the rings to a very, very narrow range compared to what we saw on Saturn. So three planets we've looked at and three very different types of rings. Nice big bride ring on Saturn, very thin, single very thin one on Jupiter, and some other thin ones, several thin ones on Uranus. Neptune has several rings as well. Some of them are actually incomplete in terms of they're an arc. So instead of having a full ring around the planet, it's a ring arc. And I don't know if we can see one clearly here, but there's some of them that only go, you know, part way around and then fade out. So there's something else interesting going on there. Um, Neptune has only been visited once. That's when we actually discovered the rings. Although now that we'd seen rings around three other Jovian planets, we kind of knew to look for them. We figured they've got to be, they're probably there because we found them on all the others but not a lot to be able to study in detail. And that's the only time you know, Neptune has been visited. But we do see those rings around all four of the Jovian planets. And those are the only four. We don't see them around any of the terrestrial planets or around any of the dwarf planets as of yet. They will probably dissipate over long times unless they're resupplied. There has to be some source of material. Uh, impacts on the moons of Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, all of these to give and put material back in. Uh, the typical studies show that the rings would slowly dissipate out into space over, billion, over a billion years, tens of millions of years, they'd slowly dissipate. So 
That's a good question. How young is the ring system is the other question. Is it relatively new? Is it only a million years old? Could something have broken up that formed into these rings? Now, that's a possibility. Um, there's some that are impacts, but not like you get with Io. Not an impact, not one you get like Io around Jupiter. So you'd think from that, Jupiter should have the much better ring. It's got this source, constant source of particles. All right, well, we'll finish up. I'll get started on this, and then I'll finish this up here on uh, Friday. Um, Pluto, that's an image of Pluto, visible light image of Pluto, one of the best we've got right now. Not very good. Um, we've got two more years and there is the New Horizons spacecraft is on its way out there and is uh, ready to study Pluto. It's going to fly by. It's not going to go into orbit around Pluto, but it is going to get out there and it's actually going to study uh, Pluto and be able to give us our first real images of it. We do see that there's lighter areas. We see that there's darker areas. Uh, Pluto was discovered in 1930. How was it discovered? Uh, similar to the way, well, Uranus was discovered quite by accident. Neptune was discovered when it was found that Uranus wasn't moving the way gravity said it should. It was not quite in the, never quite in the right spot. So you made predictions and said, hey, maybe there's another planet there causing that. Where would it have to be? Well, I can do those calculations, find out where it is, turn my telescopes there, and behold, Neptune appears. So when Neptune didn't move quite the way we thought it should, well, great, there's another planet, right? Worked once, let's do it again. Well, we predicted Pluto, where, predicted where another planet would be, and searched and found nothing. And then tried to refine calculations and search again and found nothing. Pluto was finally found by a very detailed search of the sky, of the sky actually taking images of the sky one taken now and one taken you know, a few months later, same part of the sky, and looking at them and looking for anything that moved. So you'd blink between the two, try to find anything that moved, and Pluto was discovered quite by accident. Would we have found it now? Yeah, we probably would have found it in the last few years, but not, uh, not it probably not, never would have been uh, named as a planet at that point. So what I'm going to do on Friday, so about out of time here, is I'll come back and I'll talk a little bit more about Pluto and some of the other objects as we're just about done with our, our little voyage through the planets. And then we'll go on and start on the sun on Friday. Questions?